Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Today, we continue with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 114, The Glider Penetrating further and further into the heart of the Japanese cruising ground, the Pequod was soon all astir in the fishery. Often in mild, pleasant weather, for twelve, fifteen, eighteen, and twenty hours on the stretch, they were engaged in the boats, steadily pulling or sailing or paddling after the whales, or, for an interlude of sixty or seventy minutes, calmly awaiting their uprising though with but some small success for their pains. At such times, under an abated sun, afloat all day upon smooth, slow-heaving swells, seated in his boat, light as a birch canoe, and so sociably mixing with the soft waves themselves, that like hearthstone cats they purr against the gunwale, these are the times of dreamy quietude, when beholding the tranquil beauty and brilliancy of the ocean's skin, one forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath it, and would not willingly remember that this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. These are the times when in his whaleboat the rover softly feels a certain filial, confident, land-like feeling towards the sea that he regards it as so much flowery earth. And the distant ship, revealing only the tops of her masts, seems struggling forward, not through high rolling waves, but through the tall grass of a rolling prairie, as when the western immigrants' horses only show their erected ears, while their hidden bodies widely wave through the amazing verdure. The long-drawn virgin veils, the mild blue hillsides, as over these there steals the hush, the hum. You almost swear that play-weary children lie sleeping in these solitudes, in some glad May time when the flowers of the woods are plucked. And all this mixes with your most mystic mood, so that fact and fancy, halfway meeting, interpenetrate and form one seamless whole. Nor did such soothing scenes, however temporary, fail of at least as temporary an effect on Ahab. But if these secret golden keys did seem to open in him his own secret golden treasuries, yet did his breath upon them prove but tarnishing. O grassy glades, O ever-vernal endless landscapes in the soul, in ye, though long parched by the dead drought of the earthly life, in ye men may yet roll like young horses in new morning clover, and for some few fleeting moments feel the cool dew of the life immortal on them. Would to God these blessed calms would last, but the mingled, mingling threads of life are woven by warp and woof, calms crossed by storms, a storm for every calm. There is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations and at the last one pause, through infancy's unconscious spell, boyhood's thoughtless faith, adolescence's doubt, 
the common doom, then skepticism, then disbelief, resting at last in manhood's pondering repose of if. But once gone through, we trace the round again, and our infants, boys and men, and ifs eternally. Where lies the final harbor, whence we unmoor no more? In what rapt ether sails the world, of which the weariest will never weary? Where is the foundling's father hidden? Our souls are like those orphans whose unwedded mothers die in bearing them. The secret of our paternity lies in their grave, and we must there to learn it. And that same day, too, gazing far down from his boatside into that same golden sea, Starbuck lowly murmured, Loveliness unfathomable as ever lover saw in his young bride's eye, tell me not of thy teeth-tiered sharks and thy kidnapping cannibal ways. Let faith oust fact, let fancy oust memory. I look deep down and do believe. And Stubb, fish-like, with sparkling scales, leaped up in that same golden light. I am Stubb, and Stubb has his history. But here, Stubb takes oaths that he has always been jolly. Chapter 115. The Pequod Meets the Bachelor. And jolly enough were the sights and the sounds that came bearing down before the wind some few weeks after Ahab's harpoon had been welded. It was a Nantucket ship, the Bachelor, which had just wedged in her cask of oil and bolted down her bursting hatches, and now, in glad holiday apparel, was joyously, though somewhat vaingloriously, sailing round among the widely separated ships on the ground, previous to pointing her prow for home. The three men at her masthead wore long streamers of narrow red bunting at their hats. From the stern, a whaleboat was suspended bottom down, and hanging captive from the bowsprit was seen the long lower jaw of the last whale they had slain. Signals, ensigns, and jacks of all colors were flying from her rigging on every side. Sideways lashed in each of her three basketed tops were two barrels of sperm, above which, in her top-mast cross-tees, you saw slender breakers of the same precious fluid, and nailed to her main truck was a brazen lamp. As was afterwards learned, the bachelor had met with the most surprising success, all the more wonderful for that while cruising in the same seas, numerous other vessels had gone entire months without securing a single fish. Not only had barrels of beef and bread been given away to make room for the far more valuable sperm, but additional supplemental casks had been bartered for from the ships she had met, and these were stowed along the deck and in the captain's and officers' staterooms. Even the cabin table itself had been knocked into kindling wood, and the cabin mess dined off the broad head of an oil butt, lashed down to the floor for a centerpiece. In the forecastle, the sailors had actually cocked and pitched their chests and filled them. 
It was humorously added that the cook had clapped a head on his largest boiler and filled it, that the steward had plugged his spare coffee pot and filled it, that the harpooners had headed the sockets of their irons and filled them, that indeed everything was filled with sperm except the captain's pantaloons pockets and those he reserved to thrust his hands into in self-complacent testimony of his entire satisfaction. As this glad ship of good luck bore down upon the moody Pequod, the barbarian sound of enormous drums came from her forecastle, and drawing still nearer, a crowd of her men were seen standing round her huge tripods, which, covered with the parchment-like poke or stomach skin of the black fish, gave forth a loud roar to every stroke of the clenched hands of the crew. On the quarter-deck, the mates and harpooners were dancing with the olive-hued girls who had eloped with them from the Polynesian Isles, while suspended in an ornamented boat, firmly secured aloft between the foremast and the mainmast, three Long Island Negroes, with glittering fiddle-bows of whale ivory, were presiding over the hilarious jig. Meanwhile, others of the ship's company were tumultuously busy at the masonry of the triworks, from which the huge pots had been removed. You would have almost thought they were pulling down the cursed Bastille. Such wild cries they raised, as the now useless brick and mortar were being hurled into the sea. Lord and master over all this scene, the captain stood erect on the ship's elevated quarter-deck, so that the whole rejoicing drama was full before him, and seemed merely contrived for his own individual diversion. And Ahab, he too was standing on his quarter-deck, shaggy and black, with a stubborn gloom, and as the two ships crossed each other's wakes, one all jubilations for things past, the other all forebodings as to things to come, their two captains in themselves impersonated the whole striking contrast of the scene. Come aboard! Come aboard! cried the gay bachelor's commander, lifting a glass and a bottle in the air. Hast seen the white whale? gritted Ahab in reply. No, only heard of him, but don't believe in him at all, said the other good-humoredly. Come aboard. Thou art too damn jolly. Sail on. Hast lost any men? Not enough to speak of. Two islanders, that's all. But come aboard, old hearty. Come along. I'll soon take that black from your brow. Come along, will ye? Mary's the play. A full ship and homeward bound. How wondrous familiar is a fool muttered Ahab, then aloud, Thou art a full ship and homeward bound, thou sayst. Well, then, call me an empty ship and outward bound. So go thy ways, and I will mine. Forward there, set sail, and keep her to the wind. And thus, while the one ship went cheerily before the breeze, the other stubbornly fought against it, and so the two vessels parted the crew of the Pequod looking with grave, lingering glances toward the receding bachelor, but the bachelor's men never heeding their gaze for the lively revelry they were in. And as Ahab, leaning over the taffrail, 
eyed the homeward-bound craft, he took from his pocket a small vial of sand, and then looking from the ship to the vial, seemed thereby bringing two remote associations together, for that vial was filled with Nantucket soundings. Chapter 116 The Dying Whale Not seldom in this life, when, on the right side, fortune's favorites sail close by us, we, though all a-droop before, catch somewhat of the rushing breeze, and joyfully feel our bagging sails fill out. So it seemed with Pequod, for next day after encountering the gay bachelor, whales were seen and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab. It was far down the afternoon, and when all the spearings of the crimson fight were done, and floating in the lovely sunset sea and sky, sun and whale both stilly died together. Then, such a sweetness and such plaintiveness, such in-wreathing horizons curled up in that rosy air that it almost seemed as if far over from the deep green convent valleys of the Manila Isles, the Spanish land breeze, wantingly turned sailor, had gone to sea, freighted with these vesper hymns. Soothed again, but only soothed to deeper gloom, Ahab, who had sterned off from the whale, sat intently watching his final wanings from the now tranquil boat. For that strange spectacle observable in all sperm whales dying, the turning sunwards of the head, and so expiring, that strange spectacle beheld of such a placid evening, somehow to Ahab conveyed a wondrousness unknown before. He turns and turns him to it, how slowly, but how steadfastly his homage rendering and invoking brow with his last dying motions. He too worships fire, most faithful, broad, baronial vassal of the sun. Oh, that these two favoring eyes should see these two favoring sights. Look here, far waterlocked, beyond all hum of human weal or woe, in these most candid and impartial seas, where to traditions no rocks furnish tablets, where for long Chinese ages the billows have still rolled on, speechless and unspoken to, as stars that shine upon the Niger's unknown source. Here, too, life dies sunwards, full of faith. But see, no sooner dead than death whirls round the corpse, and it heads some other way. O thou dark Hindu half of nature, who of drowned bones hast builded thy separate throne somewhere in the heart of these unverdured seas, Thou art an infidel, thou queen, and too truly speakest to me in the wide slaughtering typhoon and the hushed burial of its after calm. Nor has this thy whale sunwards turned his dying head and then gone round again without a lesson to me. O trebly hooped and welded hip of power, O high aspiring rainbow jet that once strivest this one jettest all in vain. In vain, O whale, 
Dost thou seek intercedings with yon all-quickening sun that only calls forth life but gives it not again? Yet dost thou, darker half, rock me with a prouder if a darker faith. All thy unnameable inminglings float beneath me here. I am buoyed by breaths of once-living things, exhaled as air, but water now. Then hail, forever hail, O sea, in whose eternal tossings the wide fowl finds his only rest. Born of earth, yet suckled by the sea, though hill and valley mothered me, ye billows are my foster brothers. Chapter 117, The Whale Watch The four whales slain that evening had died wide apart, one far to windward, one less distant to leeward, one ahead and one astern. These last three were brought alongside ere nightfall, but the windward one could not be reached till morning, and the boat that had killed it lay by its side all night, and that boat was Ahab's. The waif pole was thrust upright into the dead whale's spout hole, and the lantern hanging from its top cast a troubled flickering glare upon the black glossy back and far out upon the midnight waves, which gently chafed the whale's broad flank like soft surf upon a beach. Ahab and all his boat's crew seemed asleep but the Parsi, who, crouching in the bow, sat watching the sharks that spectrally played round the whale and tapped the light cedar planks with their tails. A sound like the moaning in squadrons over asphaltites of unforgiven ghosts of Gomorrah ran shuddering through the air. Started from his slumbers, Ahab, face to face, saw the Parsi, and hooped round by the gloom of the night, they seemed the last men in a flooded world. I have dreamed it again, said he. Of the hearses? Have I not said, old man, that neither hearse nor coffin can be thine? And who are hearse that die on the sea? But I said, old man, that ere thou couldst die on this voyage, Two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea, the first not made by mortal hands, and the visible wood of the last one must be grown in America. Aye, aye, a strange sight that, Parsi, a hearse and its plumes floating over the ocean with the waves for the pallbearers. Ha! Such a sight we shall not soon see. Believe it or not, thou canst not die till it be seen, old man. And what was that saying about thyself? Though it come to the last, I shall still go before thee, thy pilot. And when thou art so gone before, if ever that befall, then ere I can follow, thou must still appear to me, to pilot me still? Was it not so? Well then, did I believe all ye say, O my pilot? I have here two pledges that I shall yet slay Moby Dick and survive it. Take another pledge, old man, said the Parsi as his eyes lighted up like fireflies in the gloom. Hemp only can kill thee. The gallows, ye mean, 
I am immortal then on land and on sea, cried Ahab with a laugh of derision. Immortal on land and on sea. Both were silent again as one man. The gray dawn came on and the slumbering crew arose from the boat's bottom and ere noon the dead whale was brought to the ship. Chapter 118, The Quadrant The season for the line at length drew near, and every day when Ahab, coming from his cabin, cast his eyes aloft, the vigilant helmsman would ostentatiously handle his spokes, and the eager mariners quickly run to the braces, and would stand there with all their eyes centrally fixed on the nailed doubloon impatient for the order to point the ship's prow for the equator. In good time, the order came. It was hard upon high noon, and Ahab, seated in the bows of his high-hoisted boat, was about taking his wanted daily observation of the sun to determine his latitude. Now, in that Japanese sea, the days in summer are as freshets of the effulgences, That unblinkingly vivid Japanese sun seems the blazing focus of the glassy ocean's immeasurable burning glass. The sky looks lacquered, clouds there are none, the horizon floats, and this nakedness of unrelieved radiance is as the insufferable splendors of God's throne. Well that Ahab's quadrant was furnished with colored glasses, through which to take sight of that solar fire. So, swinging his seated form to the roll of the ship, and with his astrological-looking instrument placed to his eye, he remained in that posture for some moments to catch the precise instant when the sun should gain its precise meridian. Meantime, while his whole attention was absorbed, the Parsi was kneeling beneath him on the ship's deck, and with face thrown up like Ahab's, was eyeing the same sun with him. Only the lids of his eyes half-hooded their orbs, and his wild face was subdued to an earthly passionlessness. At length, the desired observation was taken, and with his pencil upon his ivory leg, Ahab soon calculated what his altitude must be at that precise instant. Then, falling into a moment's reverie, he again looked up towards the sun and murmured to himself, Thou see, Mark, thou high and mighty pilot, thou tellest me truly where I am, but canst thou cast the least hint where I shall be? Or canst thou tell where some other thing besides me is this moment living? Where is Moby Dick? This instant thou must be eyeing him. These eyes of mine look into the very eye that is even now beholding him. I, and into the eye that is even now equally beholding the objects on the unknown thither side of thee, thou son. Then gazing at his quadrant, and handling one after the other, its numerous cabalistical contrivances, he pondered again and muttered, Foolish toy! Baby's plaything of haughty admirals and commodores and captains. The world brags of thee, of thy cunning and might. 
But what, after all, canst thou do but tell the poor, pitiful point where thou thyself happenest to be on this wide planet and the hand that holds thee? No, not one jot more. Thou canst not tell where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon, and yet with thy impotence thou insultest the sun. Science! Curse thee, thou vain toy, and cursed be all the things that cast man's eyes aloft to that heaven, whose live vividness but scorches him. And as these old eyes are even now scorched with thy light, O sun, level by nature to this earth's horizon are the glances of man's eyes, not shot from the crown of his head, as if God had meant him to gaze on his firmament. Curse thee, thou quadrant! Dashing it to the deck, no longer will I guide my earthly way by thee, the level ship's compass and the level dead reckoning by log and by line. These shall conduct me and show me my place on the sea. I, lighting from the boat to the deck, thus I trample on thee, thou paltry thing that feebly pointest on high. Thus I split and destroy thee. As the frantic old man thus spoke, and thus trampled with his live and dead feet a sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab and a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself, these passed over the mute, motionless Parsi's face. Unobserved, he rose and glided away. While, awestruck by the aspect of their commander, the seamen clustered together on the forecastle, till Ahab, troubledly pacing the deck, shouted out, To the braces! Up helm! Square in! In an instant, the yard swung round, and as the ship half-wheeled upon her heel, her three firm-seated graceful masts, erectly poised upon her long-ribbed hull, seemed as the three horadi pirouetting on one sufficient steed. Standing between the night-heads, Starbuck watched the Pequod's tumultuous way, and Ahab's also, as he went lurching along the deck. I have sat before the dense coal fire and watched it all aglow, full of its tormented, flaming life, and I have seen it wane at last, down, down, to dumbest dust. Old man of oceans, of all this fiery life of thine, What will at length remain but one little heap of ashes? Aye, cried Stubb, but sea coal ashes, mind ye that, Mr. Starbuck, sea coal, not your common charcoal. Well, well, I heard Ahab mutter, here someone thrust these cards into these old hands of mine, swears that I must play them, and no others. And damn me, Ahab, but thou actest right. Live in the game and die in it. Chapter 119. The Candles Warmest climbs but nurse the cruelest fangs. The tiger of Bengal crouches in spiced groves of ceaseless verdure. Skies the most effulgent but basket the deadliest thunders. Gorgeous Cuba knows tornadoes that never swept tame northern lands. So too it is that in these resplendent Japanese seas, the mariner encounters the direst of all storms, 
the typhoon. It will sometimes burst from out that cloudless sky like an exploding bomb upon a dazed and sleepy town. Towards evening of that day, the Pequod was torn of her canvas, and bare Pold was left to fight a typhoon which had struck her directly ahead. When darkness came on, sky and sea roared and split with the thunder, and blazed with the lightning, that showed the disabled mast fluttering here and there with the rags which the fists of fury of the tempest had left for its aftersport. Holding by a shroud, Starbuck was standing on the quarter-deck, at every flash of lightning glancing aloft to see what additional disaster might have befallen the intricate hamper there, while stub and flask were directing the men in the higher hoisting and firmer lashing of the boats. But all their pain seemed not. Though lifted to the very top of the cranes, the windward quarter-boat, Ahab's, did not escape. A great rolling sea, dashing high up against the reeling ship's high teetering side, stove in the boat's bottom at the stern and left it again, all dripping through like a sieve. Bad work, bad work, Mr. Starbuck, said Stubb, regarding the wreck. But the sea will have its way, Stubb, for one can't fight it. You see, Mr. Starbuck, a wave has such a great long start before it leaps. All round the world it runs, and then comes the spring. But as for me, all the start I have to meet it is just across the deck here. But never mind, it's all fun. So the old song says, Oh, jolly is the gale, and a joker is the whale, a flourish in his tail. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey, pokey lad is the ocean, oh. The scud all a-flyin', his flip only foamin', when he stirs the spicin' in. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey, pokey lad is the ocean, oh. Thunder splits the ships, but he only smacks his lips, a tastin' of this flip. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, chesty, jokey, hokey, pokey lad is the ocean, oh. Avast, sub, cried Starbuck. Let the typhoon sing and strike his harp here in our rigging. But if thou art a brave man, thou wilt hold thy peace. But I am not a brave man, never said I was a brave man. I am a coward, and I sing to keep up my spirits. And I tell you what it is, Mr. Starbuck, there's no way to stop my singing in this world but to cut my throat. And when that's done, ten to one, I sing ye the doxology for a wind-up. Madman, look through my eyes if thou hast none of thy own. What? How can you see better of a dark night than anybody else? Never mind how foolish. Here, cried Starbuck, seizing Stubb by the shoulder and pointing his hand towards the weather bow. Markest thou not the gale that comes from the eastward, the very course Ahab is to run for Moby Dick, the very course he swung to this day noon? Now mark his boat there. Where is that stove? In the stern sheets, man, where he is wont to stand? His standpoint is stove, man. Now jump overboard and sing away if thou must. 
I don't half understand ye. What's in the wind? Yes, yes, round the Cape of Good Hope is the shortest way to Nantucket, soliloquized Starbuck, suddenly heedless of Stubbs' question. The gale that now hammers at us to stave us, we can turn it into a fair wind that will drive us towards home. Yonder, to windward, all is blackness of doom, but to leeward, homeward. I see it lightens up there, but not with the lightning. At that moment, in one of the intervals of profound darkness, following the flashes, a voice was heard at his side, and almost at the same instant, a volley of thunder peals rolled overhead. Who's there? Old thunder, said Ahab, groping his way along the bulwarks to his pivot hole, but suddenly finding his path made plain to him by elbowed lances of fire. Now, as the lightning rod to aspire on shore is intended to carry off the perilous fluid into the soil, so the kindred rod which at sea some ships carry to each mast is intended to conduct it into the water. But as this conductor must descend to considerable depth, that its end may avoid all contact with the hull, and as, moreover, if kept constantly towing there, it would be liable to many mishaps, besides interfering not a little with some of the rigging, and more or less impeding the vessel's way in the water. Because of all this, the lower parts of a ship's lightning rods are not always overboard, but are generally made in long slender links so as to be the more readily hauled up into the chains outside or thrown down into the sea as occasion may require. The rods! The rods! cried Starbuck to the crew, suddenly admonished to vigilance by the vivid lightning that had just been darting flambeau to light Ahab to his post. Are they overboard? Drop them over, fore and aft, quick! Avast! cried Ahab. Let's have fair play here, though we be the weaker side. Yet I'll contribute to raise rods on the Himalayas and Andes that all the world may be secure. But out on privileges, let them be, sir. Look aloft, cried Starbuck. The corpuscents, the corpuscents. All the yard arms were tipped with a pallid fire and touched at each tri-pointed lightning rod end with three tapering white flames. Each of the three tall masts was silently burning in that sulfurous air like three gigantic wax tapers before an altar. Blast the boat! Let it go! cried Stubb at this instant as a swashing sea heaved up under his own little craft so that its gunwale violently jammed his hand as he was passing a lashing. Blast it! But slipping backward on the deck, his uplifted eyes caught the flames, and immediately shifting his tone, he cried, The corpuscents have mercy on us all. To sailors, oaths are household words. They will swear in the trance of the calm and in the teeth of the tempest. They will imprecate curses from the topsail yard arms when most they teeter over to a seething sea. But in all my voyagings, seldom have I heard a common oath when God's burning finger has been laid on the ship, when his 
Mene, Mene, Tekel Upharpsen, has been woven into the shrouds and the cordage. While this pallidness was burning aloft, few words were heard from the enchanted crew, who, in one thick cluster, stood on the forecastle, all their eyes gleaming in that pale phosphorescence like a faraway constellation of stars. Relieved against the ghostly light, the gigantic jet negro, Degu, loomed up to thrice his real stature and seemed the black cloud from which the thunder had come. The parted mouth of Tashtego revealed his shark white teeth, which strangely gleamed as if they too had been tipped by corpuscents. While lit up by the preternatural light, Queequeg's tattooing burned like satanic blue flames on his body. The tableau all waned at last with the pallidness aloft, and once more the Pequod and every soul on her decks were wrapped in a pall. A moment or two passed when Starbuck, going forward, pushed against someone. It was Stubb. What thinkest now, now, man? I heard thy cry. It was not the same in the song. No, no, it wasn't. I said the corpuscents have mercy on us all, and I hope they will, still. But do they only have mercy on long faces? Have they no bowels for laugh? And look ye, Mr. Starbuck. Ah, but it's too dark to look. Hear me, then. I take that last masthead flame we saw for a sign of good luck, for those masts are rooted in a hold that is going to be chock-a-block with sperm oil, d'ye see? And so all that sperm will work up into the masts like sap in a tree. Yes, our three masts will yet be as three spermaceti candles. That's the good promise we saw. At that moment, Starbuck caught sight of Stubb's face slowly beginning to glimmer into sight. Glancing upwards, he cried, See! See! And once more the high tapering flames were beheld with what seemed redoubled supernaturalness in their pallor. The corpuscents have mercy on us all, cried Stubb again. At the base of the mainmast, full beneath the doubloon and the flame, the Parsi was kneeling in Ahab's front, but with his head bowed away from him, while nearby, from the arched and overhanging rigging, where they had just been engaged securing a spar, a number of the seamen, arrested by the glare, now cohered together and hung pendulous, like a knot of numb wasps from a drooping orchard twig. In various enchanted attitudes, like the standing or stepping or running skeletons in Herculaneum, others remained rooted to the deck, but all their eyes upcast. Aye, aye, men, cried Ahab. Look up at that, mark it well. The white flame but lights the way to the white whale. Hand me those mainmast links there. I would fain feel this pulse, and let mine beat against it blood against fire. So... Then turning, the last link held fast in his left hand, he put his foot upon the Parsi, and with fixed upward eye and high-flung right arm, he stood erect before the lofty, tri-pointed trinity of the flames. O oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on these seas I as Persian once did worship, 
till in the sacramental act so burned by thee that to this hour I bear the scar. I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence wilt thou be kind, and even for the hate thou canst but kill, and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. I own thy speechless, placeless power, but to the last gasp of my earthquake life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personified impersonal, a personality stands here. Though but a point at best, whencesoe'er I came, whencesoe'er I go, yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me and feels her royal rights. But war is pain and hate is woe. Come in thy lowest form of love and I will kneel and kiss thee. But at thy highest come as mere supernal power. And though thou launchest navies of full-freighted worlds, there's that in here that still remains indifferent. O thou clear spirit of thy fire, thou madest me, and like a true child of fire, I breathe it back to thee. Sudden, repeated flashes of lightning, the nine flames leap lengthwise to thrice their previous height. Ahab, with the rest, closes his eyes, his right hand pressed hard upon them. I own thy speechless, placeless power, said I not so? Nor was it wrung from me, nor do I now drop these links. Thou canst bind, but I can then grope. Thou canst consume, but I can then be ashes. Take the homage of these poor eyes and shudder hands. I would not take it. The lightning flashes through my skull, mine eyeballs ache and ache. My whole beaten brain seems as beheaded and rolling on some stunning ground. Oh, oh, yet blindfolded, yet will I talk to thee. Light though thou be, thou leapest out of darkness. But I am darkness leaping out of light, leaping out of thee. The javelin cease, open eyes, see or not. There burn the flames, oh, thou magnanimous. Now I do glory in my genealogy, but thou art but my fiery father, my sweet mother I know not. O cruel, what hast thou done with her? There lies my puzzle, but thine is greater. Thou knowest not how came ye, hence callest thyself begotten. Certainly knowest not thy beginning, hence callest thyself unbegun. I know that of me, which thou knowest not of thyself. O thou omnipotent, there is some unsuffusing thing beyond thee, thou clear spirit, to whom all thy eternity is but time, all thy creativeness mechanical. Through thee, thy flaming self, my scorched eyes do dimly see it. O thou foundling fire, thou hermit immemorial, Thou too hast thy incommunicable riddle, thy unparticipated grief. Here again, with haughty agony, I read my sire. Leap, leap up and lick the sky. I leap with thee. I burn with thee. Would fain be welded with thee. Defyingly, I worship thee.
The boat, the boat, cried Starbuck. Look at thy boat, old man. Ahab's harpoon, the one forged at Perth's fire, remained firmly lashed in its conspicuous crotch so that it projected beyond his whaleboat's bow. But the sea that had stove its bottom had caused the loose leather sheath to drop off, and from the keen steel barb there now came a leveled flame of pale forked fire. As the silent harpoon burned there like a serpent's tongue, Starbuck grasped Ahab by the arm. God, God is against thee, old man. Forbear, tis an ill voyage, ill begun, ill continued. Let me square the yards while we may, old man, and make a fair wind of it homewards to go on a better voyage than this. Overhearing Starbuck, the panic-stricken crew instantly ran to the braces, though not a sail was left aloft. For the moment, all the aghast mate's thoughts seemed theirs. They raised a half-mutinous cry. But dashing the rattling lightning links to the deck and snatching the burning harpoon, Ahab waved it like a torch among them, swearing to transfix with it the first sailor that but cast loose a rope's end. Petrified by his aspect, and still more shrinking from the fiery dart that he held, the men fell back in dismay, and Ahab again spoke. All your oaths to hunt the white whale are as binding as mine, and heart, soul, and body, lungs, and life, old Ahab is bound. And that ye may know to what tune this heart beats, look ye here, thus I blow out the last fear. And with one blast of his breath, he extinguished the flame. As in the hurricane that sweeps the plain, men fly the neighborhood of some lone gigantic elm whose very height and strength but render it so much the more unsafe because so much the more a mark for thunderbolts. So at last, those last words of Ahab's, many of the mariners did run from him in a terror of dismay. Chapter 120, The Deck Towards the End of the First Night Watch Ahab standing by the helm, Starbuck approaching him. We must send down the main topsail yard, sir. The band is working loose and the lead lift is half-stranded. Shall I strike it, sir? Strike nothing. Lash it. If I had a sky-sail poles, I'd sway them up now. Sir... In God's name, sir. Well, the anchors are working, sir. Shall I get them in board? Strike nothing and stir nothing, but lash everything. The wind rises, but it has not got up to my table lands yet. Quick and see to it. By mask and keels, he takes me for the hunchbacked skipper of some coasting smack. Send down my topsail yard. Ho, gluepots! Loftiest trucks were made for the wildest winds, and this brain truck of mine now sails amid the cloud scud. Shall I strike that? Oh, none but cowards send down their brain trucks in tempest time. What a hurush aloft there! I would even take it for sublime, did I not know that the colic is a noisy malady. Oh, take medicine! Take medicine!
Chapter 121 Midnight, the Folksle Bulwarks Stub and flask mounted on them, and passing additional lashings over the anchors there hanging. No, Stub, you may pound that knot there as much as you please, but you will never pound into me what you were just saying now. And how long ago is it since you said the very contrary? Didn't you once say that whatever ship Ahab sails in, that ship should pay something extra on its insurance policy, just as though it were loaded with powder barrels aft and boxes of lucifers forward? Stop now. Didn't you say so? Well, suppose I did. What then? I've part changed my flesh since that time. Why not my mind? Besides, supposing we are loaded with powder barrels aft and lucifers forward, how the devil could the lucifers get a fire in this drenching spray here? Why, my little man, you have pretty red hair, but you couldn't get a fire now. Shake yourself. Your Aquarius, or the water-bearer flask, might fill pitchers at your coat collar. Don't you see, then, that for these extra risks the marine insurance companies have extra guarantees? Here are hydrants, flask. But hark again, and I'll answer ye the other thing. First, take your leg off from the crown of the anchor here, though, so I can pass the rope. Now listen. What's the mighty difference between holding a mast's lightning rod in the storm and standing close by a mast that hasn't got any lightning rod at all in a storm? Don't you see, you timberhead, that no harm can come to the holder of the rod unless the mast is first struck? What are you talking about, then? Not one ship in a hundred carries rods and Ahab. I, man, and all of us. We're in no more danger then, in my poor opinion, than all the crews in ten thousand ships now sailing the seas. Why, you king post, you, I suppose you would have every man in the world go about with a small lightning rod running up the corner of his hat like a militia officer's skewered feather and trailing behind like his sash. Why don't ye be sensible, Flask? It's easy to be sensible, Why don't ye then? Any man with half an eye can be sensible. I don't know that, Stub. You sometimes find it rather hard. Yes, when a fellow's soaked through, it's hard to be sensible, that's a fact. And I am about drenched with this spray. Never mind, catch the turn there and pass it. Seems to me we are lashing down these anchors now as if they were never going to be used again. Tying these two anchors here, Flask, seems like tying a man's hands behind him. And what big, generous hands they are, to be sure. These are your iron fists, eh? What a hold they have, too. I wonder, Flask, whether the world is anchored anywhere. If she is, she swings with an uncommon long cable, though. There, hammer that knot down, and we've done. So... Next to touching land, lighting on deck is the most satisfactory. I say just wring out my jacket skirts, will ye? Thank ye. They laugh at long togs, so, Flask, but seems to me a long-tailed coat ought always to be worn in all storms afloat. The tails tapering down that way serve to carry off the water, d'ye see? Same with cocked hats. 
The cocks form gable end eave troughs flask. No more monkey jackets and tarpaulins for me. I must mount a swallowtail and drive down a beaver. So, hello! Whew! There goes my tarpaulin overboard. Lord, Lord, that the winds that come from heaven should be so unmannerly. This is a nasty night, lad. Chapter 122, Midnight Aloft, Thunder and Lightning The main topsail yard, Tashtego passing new lashings around it. Um, 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 stop that thunder, plenty too much thunder up here. What's the use of thunder? Um, 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 we don't want thunder, we want rum. Give us a glass of rum. Um, um, um. Chapter 123, The Musket During the most violent shocks of the typhoon, the man at the Pequod's jawbone tiller had several times been reelingly hurled to the deck by its spasmodic motions, even though preventer tackles had been attached to it, for they were slack, because some play to the tiller was indispensable. In a severe gale like this, while the ship is but a tossed shuttlecock to the blast, it is by no means uncommon to see the needles in the compasses at intervals go round and round. It was thus with the Pequods. At almost every shock, the helmsman had not failed to notice the whirling velocity with which they revolved upon the cards. It is a sight that hardly anyone can behold without some sort of unwanted emotion. Some hours after midnight, the typhoon abated so much that through the strenuous exertions of Starbuck and Stubb, one engaged forward, the other aft, the shivered remnants of the jib and fore and main top sails were cut adrift from the spars and went eddying away to leeward, like the feathers of an albatross, which sometimes are cast to the winds when that storm-tossed bird is on the wing. The three corresponding new sails were now bent and reefed, and a storm trysail was set further aft, so that the ship soon went through the water with some precision again, and the course, for the present, east-southeast, which he was to steer, if practicable, was once more given to the helmsman. For during the violence of the gale, he had only steered according to its vicissitudes, but as he was now bringing the ship as near her course as possible, watching the compass meanwhile, lo, a good sign. The wind seemed coming round stern. I, the foul breeze, became fair. Instantly the yards were squared to the lively song of Ho the fair wind, O ye ho, cheerly men. The crew singing for joy that so promising an event should so soon have falsified the evil portents preceding it. In compliance with the standing order of his commander to report immediately and at any one of the 24 hours any decided change in the affairs of the deck, Starbuck had no sooner trimmed the yards to the breeze, however reluctantly and gloomily, then he mechanically went below to apprise Captain Ahab of the circumstance.
Ere knocking at his stateroom, he involuntarily paused before it a moment. The cabin lamp, taking long swings this way and that, was burning fitfully and casting fitful shadows upon the old man's bolted door, a thin one with fixed blinds inserted in place of upper panels. The isolated subterraneousness of the cabin made a certain humming silence to reign there, though it was hooped round by all the roar of the elements. The loaded muskets in the rack were shiningly revealed as they stood upright against the forward bulkhead. Starbuck was an honest, upright man, but out of Starbuck's heart, at that instant when he saw the muskets, there strangely evolved an evil thought but so blent with its neutral or good accompaniments that for the instant he hardly knew it for itself. He would have shot me once, he murmured. Yes, there's the very musket that he pointed at me, that one with the studded stock. Let me touch it, lift it. Strange that I, who have handled so many deadly lances, strange that I should shake so now. Loaded? I must see. Aye, aye, and powder in the pan. That's not good. Best spill it? Wait, I'll cure myself of this. I'll hold the musket boldly while I think. I come to report a fair wind to him. But how fair? Fair for death and doom? That's fair for Moby Dick. It's a fair wind that's only fair for that accursed fish. The very tube he pointed at me, the very one, this one, I hold it here. He would have killed me with the very thing I handle now. I, and he would fain kill all his crew. Does he not say he will not strike his spars to any gale? Has he not dashed his heavenly quadrant? And in these same perilous seas, gropes he not his way by mere dead reckoning of the error-abounding log? And in this very typhoon, did he not answer that he would have no lightning rods? But shall this crazed old man be tamely suffered to drag a whole ship's company down to doom with him? Yes, it would make him the willful murderer of thirty men and more, if this ship come to any deadly harm, and come to deadly harm, my soul swears this ship will, if Ahab have his way. If, then, he were this instant put aside, that crime would not be his. Ha! Is he muttering in his sleep? Yes, just there, in there, he's sleeping. Sleeping? Aye, but still alive and soon awake again. I can't withstand thee, then, old man. Not reasoning, not remonstrance, not entreaty wilt thou hearken to, and all this thou scornest. Flat obedience to thy own flat commands, this is all thou breathest. I and sayst the men have vowed thy vow, sayst all of us are Ahabs. Great God forbid. But is there no other way? No lawful way? Make him a prisoner to be taken home? What? Hope to wrest this old man's living power from his own living hands? Only a fool would try it. Say he were pinioned even, 
knotted all over with ropes and hawsers, chained down to ring bolts on this cabin floor, he would be more hideous than a caged tiger. Then I could not endure the sight, could not possibly fly his howlings. All comfort, sleep itself, inestimable reason would leave me on the long, intolerable voyage. What then remains? The land is hundreds of leagues away and locked Japan the nearest. I stand alone here upon an open sea with two oceans and a whole continent between me and law. I, I, tis so. Is heaven a murderer when its lightning strikes a would-be murderer in his bed, tindering sheets and skin together? And would I be a murderer then if, and slowly, stealthily, and half sideways looking, he placed the loaded musket's end against the door. On this level, Ahab's hammock swings within, his head this way. A touch, and Starbuck may survive to hug his wife and child again. Oh, Mary, Mary, boy, boy, boy. But if I wake thee not to death, old man, who can tell what unsounded deep Starbuck's body this day, week, may sink with all the crew? Great God, where art thou? Shall I? Shall I? The wind has gone down and shifted, sir. The fore and main topsails are reefed and set. She heads her course. Stern all, O oh, Moby Dick, I clutch thy heart at last. Such were the sounds that now came hurtling from out the old man's tormented sleep, as if Starbuck's voice had caused the long dumb dream to speak. The yet leveled musket shook like a drunkard's arm against the panel. Starbuck seemed wrestling with an angel, but turning from the door, he placed the death tube in its rack and left the place. He's too sound asleep, Mr. Stubb. Go thou down and wake him and tell him, I must see to the deck here. Thou knowst what to say. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time when the Pequod's compass needle has a problem.